in This is the Reason for Time, Episode 2, a podcast about memory, truth, invention, and of course time, and how they all came together in a novel. Last week I told you how I came upon the idea for the book. That's the fun part, the excitement around something new. But the idea is only the beginning. Then you have to figure out what to do with it. I had decided to limit the events to what happened during that one hot week in Chicago during July 1919. That would be enough to handle. But how? This was going to be a novel, not a history book. Well, you have to get the facts straight in a good historical novel. History is really just the time when a character lives. Someone can be the product of her times, but it's still the someone who's important, at least in my view. Maeve, my 20-year-old, and the streetcar conductor I wanted to bring in as a way of imagining how he might be related to my family. When you don't have an actual explanation, imagination steps up. That's another good thing to come with. Imagination. So, curiosity, imagination. Point of view has always been a big one for me, and I feel it must be for most novelists. Once you decide on a point of view, you can get to the voice of a novel. The voice springs from the perspective of the character or characters the story unfolds through, obviously. The only problem is that the author's own peculiarities of voice affect the sound of the narrative. And after the many books and stories I wrote in the third person, I was getting tired of the different versions of me. The writer Douglas Glover had partly this to say about the quintessence of a good novelist. To have distanced yourself enough from your hang-ups and pettiness to create words reflecting the emotional complexity of a mind beyond your own. To have worked with language long enough to be able to wield it beautifully. He goes on, but that excerpt describes Howard Norman's work in The Bird Artist, which I mentioned last week. It's a good story made great by the distinct voice of Fabian Boss. Listen. For several years in decent weather, we took long walks together. I brought a feeling of nervous mystery to these walks, mostly based on one thing, really. One would Margaret provoke me out of silence. I desired not to talk. She would get annoyed. Don't you have an opinion? If you don't have opinions, you're the village idiot. The actual provocation aptly pertained to a saying about the unpredictable and sudden shifts in Newfoundland weather. Every breeze messengers a storm. The verb provoke and the phrase, I desired not to talk, were the author's choice. Fabian could have said, as other teenagers might have, I never felt like talking. There's an odd formality to Fabian's language. I felt he was talking directly to me from that long-ago time in Whitless Bay, Newfoundland, a little earlier in the century than the reason for time, and in a location much more remote than bustling Chicago. So how would Maeve have talked? Well, she's Irish, a young immigrant. She would have kept her accent in some peculiarities of Irish speech. But the last thing I wanted to do is lay on a thick, stage Irish brogue. You know, the Faith and Begora kind the comics roll out every St. Patrick's Day. 
Dropping the G's was the first thing I tried, and I used it consistently for some of the characters, but it did get to be a bit raggedy on the ears, and when I had a draft, my first reader, the poet David Ziroth, advised me to limit it. I decided to confine that particular tip to dialogue, particularly the dialogue of the main male character, guess who, the streetcar conductor, I named him Desmond Malloy. The other thing about Maeve and all the other characters is that their story takes place nearly a hundred years ago. People talk differently then. For one, for one thing, no one used words that are now considered polite when speaking of immigrants and their descendants, like Irish American, African American, etc. Nope, there were mix, Pollocks, hunkies, dagos, spicks, kikes, spades, and colored, or negroes, as well as way more insulting words that are hard to say out loud. To find out what words people used at the time, I turned to novels like James T. Farrell's Studs Lonigan trilogy and Peter Finley Dunn's Mr. Dooley columns. I found Mr. Dooley online as I did the once popular Libby Jean Davies romance novels. I reread some Edna O'Brien and found an essay by Brian Doyle called Yes in the Georgia Review in which he writes of the swing and swell of the Irish language. James T. Farrell has studs say the word swell a lot and also refer to someone as all dolled up. He calls a hat a lid. I'll get to some of the less charming things he says later. I used some of Carl Sandburg's reportage and relied a lot in general for language and events on old newspapers. There must be a course on that somewhere in a journalism school. How journalism affects literature, maybe, or the other way around? I even found a website listing slang that was commonly used in 1919. So that took care of vocabulary. But the sentence rhythms of a first-person narrator like Maeve, the Maeve I imagined, required more. The choices didn't come easily. I tried various ways of creating the cadence of her inner voice and her dialogue. Readers from Irish backgrounds asked if I had first-hand experience of a voice like Maeve's. Well, maybe I did when I was really young. I do remember my grandma rolling the R in my name, Mary. But if it was more than that, it's a knowledge that's buried deep. I worked at Maeve's voice. I did easy things like writing could ah instead of could have. I contracted wherever possible, such as saying it is instead of it had, and I decided to use almost no relative pronouns, which makes the narrative odd to read at first, but readers do slip into it eventually and enjoy it. I think because it brings them closer to Maeve, which is what a first-person voice is supposed to do. If you listen closely to Ethel Witte reading Maeve's account of meeting Desmond the day after the dirigible crash, you'll hear how it works out. Finally done for the day, slipped into the stream flowing towards the tall brass doors, whirled a body from the vestibule out to the street. 
Knowing my choice rested between Bridie and her back stairs or our oven of a room, I got off the car at Halstead, as I often did, but instead of heading up to West Monroe, I meandered along the street to enjoy a bit of the evening stench, the clouds of it blowing north from the yards, then also garbage rotting and sweat-dripping horses, the wheezy motor cars and trucks with their billows of gas exhaust, the reek of urine along the walls outside the saloons. More open there in Halstead, brighter so. Even though a dirty sky, I could see more of it here than downtown, where buildings rose so tall they darkened the streets beneath. I had to walk past the Academy of Music and wasn't I tempted to duck in and see a show, for they played all day, and not many days didn't need lightning with a laugh. But I had to choose between a show or supper tonight, because we'd splurged on Sunday, Margaret and me, and it was too hot to sit indoors anyhow. The old ones sat out on stoops, crones with shawls draped around them in the scant shade of doorways. Signs tempting from above were painted right on the window. Ice cream sundae, ten cents, and didn't that one wet my mouth with longing? A storefront movie theater had to be Italian with all the eyes in the words. The mission on the corner where a man held a placard said, Jesus saves. Lunch counters and proper, if not especially fancy, restaurants. Thompson's Cafeteria, further down, and delicatessens where the proprietor would slice me off a smidge of cheese or meat I could eat in my hand as I walked if I wanted. Oh, yes, and I was famished, and the memory of lunch dry as the bread made up that meal. I'd have liked nothing more than a cold soda or one of them lemonades you could buy at the cafe on the corner where Halstead met Madison. Thought to myself, wouldn't it be nice to idle here till the sky went pink again, and it wasn't so blinding out. Blinding even if a lair, same as the gauze strip should put over a bleeding wound spread over the city of Chicago, where my sister Margaret and me had come to meet our futures. I'd already spent a nickel for my fare, though I might have had it still if Desmond Malloy had been collecting on my car. Yes, that one. And hadn't he been sneaking into my dreams all day? Good chance he would let me slip by for free, since he'd made such a fuss yesterday. But I was left with only four nickels and where to spend them the sizzle of sausages from one of the hunky places, that salty cheese you could get from the Greeks if you could suffer the garlic on the vendor's breath. Well, we'd had a grand time, my sister and me, at the show on Sunday. We laughed at the vaudeville and we'd cried at the picture. Even if it cost us a good portion of our weekly wages, I never saw one so beautiful. Broken blossoms. And in a movie palace so grand made you forget your near-empty pocketbook. Maybe it meant more bread than meat till the next payday. Didn't matter more than the gut needed satisfying. Then a tap on my shoulder and me startled, turning round to see the moss on the friary stones posting its softness, the hair shooting back from that arrow point and the bare strip of scarlet around the boiled ham forehead, and his hat in his hand, but a boater instead of the conductor's build cap he wore on the cars. Fancy meeting you on this night of nights, the girl who saw it all and them still counting the dead. What's that I see above your collar? Okay. who saw it all and them still counting the dead. What's that I see above your collar? He gazed down at me, so I wondered if my hat had gone crooked again. My shirt waist had got soiled as well it might have at the end of such a day. But it's the nick from yesterday he saw as he bent down, breezing me with the smell of beer. Tis a souvenir of the day yesterday, though I don't need reminding, but why would this night be special then? Another American holiday or some other occasion I'd missed in my ignorance? No, but the game is men lost. The White Sox, 
and it's no surprise to me he should have been pinning his dreams on those fellows like most of the rest in the city. I rarely dawdled for long in the sports pages, but I'd seen pictures of the players lined up in their uniforms. They were going to win the World Series of Baseball, everyone said it, though the world they talked about included only the U.S. of A., as far as I could tell. No one imagined their precious white would turn to black, all those men be shamed before the year was out. That's the tragedy, then, is it? Not the airship crash, or the soldiers returned in one piece can't find jobs to feed themselves. It's like he never heard me. He was shaking his head as he was smiling, his lips pursed together. A dimple the size of a pencil, Eraser dented his left cheek, and them eyebrows went up. Still, he did look beat, and I was after thinking it had to be more than a game troubling him. But I aimed to keep my gaze hard as the glare of the sea on the rare day's sun-blessed our crossing, and I drifted, as I do when the past rises, and the seconds ticked along while I tried to think of what to say next. But then he spoke. "'Have you had your supper yet, darling?' I confess your name has slipped my memory at being such a day, but I'm just off to have my own and would be pleased to have you join me. I lied, saying of course I'd had my supper, because it had all of a sudden gone to mid-evening blue, I'd strolled that long, and a girl with a proper family would have been home and come back if she rode at all. Well then, sit with me while I have mine. You might enjoy a dish of ice cream or a lemonade. What do you say, dear? Cheer me up. There's a cafe at Madison where they make a nice lemonade. Go down very smooth on a steaming evening like this. Dear, he said, and darling, as if he'd known me for months. After just confessing he'd forgotten my name, not remembering I'd never mentioned it, I shrugged, as if I hadn't been thinking of that cafe myself. Cheer you up, is it? Well, then I suppose I could, for a short spell, because I'm after meeting my sister soon. That'd be Margaret Cora, while I'm Maeve. I fibbed about Margaret to give myself an escape. Yet as the hours whiled by, I regretted it because he persuaded me to have a piece of pie with my drink and winked at the lady, old as Bridie could have been, but looking done in and wearing a skirt soiled with something must have dropped on it, when she mentioned the a la mode would be extra. It was cherry inside and came lovely with cream dripping over the sugar sparkle of the brown crust. She didn't look at me at all when she set it down, but smiling, the ears as if melted away, asked him if he'd like to take cream in his coffee. Thank you, dear, I will. He took out a package of cigarettes, shook one loose and lit it, and his right eye went squinty with the smoke curling up towards the ceiling fan. Dicky Kerr's a disappointment. If they wanted to use a southpaw, they should have gone with Lefty Williams. He's the man. If they'd asked me, I would have said pull Dicky. But no one asked, and no one listened to the experts in the stands, and so we lost the series when we could have made a clean sweep of it. The waitress then brought his dinner on a thick white plate, heavenly fumes steaming up from the meat, slices of it drifting in a dark gravy soaked up by a hunk of bread even thicker than the plate. I should have bitten my tongue for thinking it more dainty to pretend to be full when I had enough appetite to finish his plate, my pie, and more still. I've had my supper, I'd said, as if I'd never missed a meal. Pride's a virtue better suited to the well-fed. But there was nothing for it then but to stretch out the pie, forkful by forkful, taking a bit in my mouth and savoring the difference between the soft tart filling and the crisp pastry. Listening, too, for he blathered as he stabbed and cut, pierced and chewed, swallowed, like a man ought to eat. 
Despite my own hunger, it was gratifying in itself to watch Desmond Malloy campaigning his way through that meal, juice dribbling onto his bristly chin, him wiping it with the back of his hand between words that described the defeat his beloved White Sox suffered at the hands of the Yankees from New York. That he was a man of strong feeling, I could guess by the way the lights and dark shifted on his face as the story wound out. He grinned at the recollection of one thing, frowned at something else, and the melody of his voice rose and fell and occasionally paused as he gulped and the big knuckle in his throat jogged up and down in a fascinating way. I recalled the picture in yesterday's paper of the dirigible preparing to take off from Grant Park. The ropes had held it fast until it rose to its fate. Sitting there across from the streetcar conductor, my heart lifted, not entirely off like that airship, but like a conveyance intended to soar, only tethered to the ground for the time being. As evening deepened, the odd puff of air came in cooling. If I'd gone back to Bridie's and had a wash before my stroll and hung my shirtwaist in the air to freshen it, or worn tomorrow's, I'd not have been wondering if I'd smelled bad, or if the grime of the city had soiled my face. But I would never have met Mr. Desmond Beloy had the weariness of a man at the end of a day smoking his camel cigarettes. Then, so sudden I blinked my eyes, he smiled broad, his teeth good, and dropped altogether the subject of striking carmen and losing ball teams. Instead, he asked, Anyone ever tell you you're a dead ringer for Dorothy Phillips? The movie star, no one had, and I admitted as much. The brown eyes and the curly hair, though, look closer in the mirror, darling, you'll see it. Pouring right across the table all that charm of his. But Dorothy Phillips was it, herself on the corner of photoplay the very month. Then he switched subjects, asking about the home country and had I come over with my family and how charming it sounded, my way of speaking, and how had we all made out. The past loomed like an ache, my mammy's face, the blades of her cheekbones, the hollows deepened with each tooth lost. My da, his good nature besting the pain of walking most days, but sometimes the pain besting the good nature and him lashing out with a stick at whoever stood nearest. The wicked gate, the friary, the whole tangled, startling lot of memories, threatening to overtake me in one of them waves I fought through by looking out at the lights on Halstead Street, crowds of people and peddlers calling still at this hour and tunes from a wheeze box. All so busy and joyous, easy to forget any troubles in the bustle, Nothing of the kind in Ennis, only the streets, even the nicest, like Church Street, with its curve opening to a view of the cathedral. Even Church Street, filthy with the droppings of ponies and asses waiting in the harnesses of the traps. Streets so narrow they'd be somber on the sunniest of days. It's just me and Margaret came, I told him. My sister, Arda, chose us as the ones likely to succeed in America, and we'll be going back some day for a visit anyway. We're saving for it. But sure, we were not. Whenever we put a few bills aside, some need forced us to use them. We might as well have been saving for a palace as the price of our package back to, passage back to Ennis. He was staring across the table at me, intent-like. Yet even so, the right pupil wandered off to the side of the red-veined white. Like us all, never set eyes on the home country myself. But my God, Ma can get herself weeping for it, though she was small when she left. Come to think of it, I must have passed you in the crowd Sunday at the flag raisin. You remember, aren't you, Maeve, you and your sister Margaret, the ancient order of the high 
Burmians. The right side eye joined the left as he stretched them both wide, rolling his R's, playing the clown like he did on the cars. He laughed at his try for an accent same as mine. Grand, wasn't it? The flag of the Republic of Ireland flying right here in Chicago. Twas, I nodded, without admitting her absence. Instead of joining the party in Bridgeport, Margaret and me had been sitting in the theatre, dabbing at our tears as a Chinese man found the poor little girl dead in the wonderful picture show Broken Blossoms. It was the memory of that caused the mournfulness he read on my face, though he thought it must be me missing the home country. <clears throat> Gee, it must be a simpler kind of life. And wouldn't we all go for a life like that, considering what's happening here in this stew pot? You can't open a letter for wondering if there's a Balshi bomb in it. And even worse than the Balshis, them niggers just keep streaming north when any jobs you have ought to be going to the men fought for this country, like you were saying. We need some changes around here. It can get a man down. It's a wonder I don't just jump in the lake sometimes. Do you ever feel like that, Maeve? The big one there. Never that. No. You're not a swimmer, then. I am not. You have not been to the ballpark, and you don't swim at the lake. You're missing out on all the pleasures of the city, darling. Perked up again, stars glinting in them eyes, light shining through a glass bottle greener than anything I ever saw back home, despite the picture his mammy painted for him. I let my shoulders lift and fall, and he went on talking about the fine dunks he'd had in Lake Michigan, contests and all, and how his da taught all the Malloy boys, four of them, to swim when they were kids. My da so too, out at La Hinch, if teaching is what you could call it, when he limped into the wild Atlantic and threw us down the waves, one after the other, like fishers too meager to make up a decent feed. Even Fiona, the youngest then, and hadn't she caught a terrible fever after that weekend, her mammy said, and maybe what started her fading, though when we left, Margaret and me, she was still in the picture. Always coughing, though. Don't know how it must have been for our da when Fiona finally coughed her last. Don't know, because we were looking after coughing ones ourselves, Margaret and me. Them children barking even though Florida and all the waters around it had to be bushels warmer than Ireland's Atlantic. So you couldn't blame our da. Fiona wouldn't have liked being left on the shore as out he tossed the rest of us. So way you'll learn, he said, when we came up sputtering. But we never got to La Hinch much. And my next experience of the sea came on the Mauritania with that heaving motion. Thought of it sickened me, though it was near to eight years since we'd come over. All of us too nauseated to eat the poor food we were offered. The nuns too, but the main nun, Sister Mary Bridget, who'd made the trip more than once, assuring us that tomorrow would be better. It wouldn't be rough for the whole crossing. Didn't the sea prove her wrong that trip? Even when we got to St. Augustine, after riding on the train over land, sure solid as any I'd walked upon, even then when I saw the sea I smelled sick. How it got in our hair. We had no place to properly wash, so the sour travelled with us. The grand Titanic, big as a city, sunk down among the icebergs. The Eastland, right here in Chicago, almost as many killed as on the Titanic, even. The stories I'd read of these disasters shouted in the background, nearly deafening me as he babbled on about his fine times at the lake, parties with young friends, picnics. Then my thoughts stilled, for if my ears had not played a trick on me, he was proposing to teach me to swim. It's easy and the most refreshing thing you can do on a summer day. What do you say? Thanks to Ethel Witte, Ali Impressive Chicago, and Harris Dixon for helping to make this podcast.
The genius of Scott Joplin accounts for the music. For more information, visit The Reason for Time on Facebook, where you can post a question or leave a message. You can find The Reason for Time at all the online book retailers, or better yet, ask for it at your local independent bookstore. In Vancouver, try The Paper Hound or Pulp Fiction. It may take a bit longer, but we want to keep those wonderful stores alive. I'm Mary Burns. Thanks for listening.